Hello, Peds residents. I'm Ashley Grigsby. I'm here with Dr. Dan Rasiniak, who is the professor of emergency medicine at Indiana University and division chief, chief of toxicology and medical director of the Indiana Poison Center. And he is here to talk to us about some toxicology pearls. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm all things poison. <laughs> well, for the Peds residents who don't know, toxicology accounts for about 2% of the uh, board's um, and as we've talked about before, the highest percentage is 5% for any one topic. So it's not huge, but it's not small. And in general, pediatric residents are a little less comfortable with toxicology topics. So our uh, goal today will just be some quick pearls and help us do well on these uh, board questions. All right, let's start with the, you know, godfather of poison, Tylenol. The back, the back pain of toxicology. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Can you tell me what is the classic presentation for this? There is no classic presentation, which is why we get a Tylenol level on everybody. So if you take enough Tylenol, you'll get a little upset stomach and nausea and vomiting, but that can potentially occur with any medication that you take enough of. So early on, nothing. Within 12 or 24 hours, you might have folks who start to develop nausea and vomiting. And then if they've taken enough and go on to develop a significant hepatotoxicity, they will start to manifest signs of hepatic dysfunction. So right upper quadrant pain, vomiting, and if things are really bad, then they can start developing encephalopathy, hepatorenal syndrome, etc. How do you like decide if they have had Tylenol toxicity? I don't. I get a tunnel level on anyone I suspect for being a ingestion. And the reason we do that is for a lot of things in toxicology, we look at what we call toxidromes, which is either physical exam findings or lab findings that are you know, fairly suggestive of a drug class. Tylenol early on may have no symptoms whatsoever, but we know that treatment early can prevent uh, fatal hepatotoxicity. So anything remotely suggestive of a drug ingestion, we will get an acetaminophen level. All right, and what is the, the treatment or antidote for Tylenol toxicity? So the antidote is N-acetylcysteine. Uh, typically, we give it uh, intravenous, although uh, you can also give it oral, but intravenous is certainly easier and has less uh, vomiting. Uh, it is a great drug. If you can administer within about 8 to 10 hours, your mortality, even from a large Tylenol ingestion, is less than 1%. So early treatment with NAC will save people's lives. I did not know that. It's pretty good. All right, if you hear that noise, it means to listen up. On boards, if asked when to get an acetaminophen level, the answer is four hours post-ingestion. This is the way that the uh, curves for determining if the patient needs N-acetylcysteine were studied, and therefore the level ideally needs to be drawn at four hours post-ingestion. All right, moving on. Anticholinergic overdose. Big topic. But what are kind of the uh, classic signs of anticholinergic? So anticholinergic is one of those classic toxidromes where on physical exam you can often make the diagnosis without a test. They, because of the way the parasympathetic system works, when you block it, you tend to block all glandular secretion. So the things that are really reliable, dry mouth, dry axilla. Um, a lot of patients uh, will also get tachycardia. That's why we use atropine for bradycardic. Atropine is a really good anticholinergic drug. So you see somebody who's tachycardic with a dry mouth, you start thinking about anticholinergic. The other things that you get is you get goofy. This is the mad as a hatter uh, kind of mnemonic part. Uh, and the classic, what I'd call central anticholinergic findings 
are somebody who is mumbling and somebody who is picking at things. So when you walk in the room and someone's going, and they're picking at stuff in the air and they're talking to people who aren't there and you look at them and their mouth's dry and you look at the heart rate and it's 110, 115, that's an anticholinergic poisoning. Other things you'll hear are dilated pupils. And yes, atropine dilates your pupils, but it's not as reliable of a finding. And the reason is, is that a lot of drugs that are anticholinergic are also something else. And a lot of them are also what we call sympatholytic, like they're alpha blockers. And that makes your pupils small, and the anticholinergic part can make your pupils big. So you end up often with people that just kind of have normalish pupils. If you have somebody, however, who ingests a pure, what I'd call anticholinergic drug, Flexeril is a pretty good example, they will have pretty nice and pretty large dilated pupils. Are there any other uh, common anticholinergic drugs that people ingest? There's a bazillion of them, which is why this is one of the more common uh, toxicologic problems we see. So the big ones that we see are antihistamine, so Benadryl, chlorpheniramine. All of the old antihistamines are really good anticholinergic drugs. Uh, GI drugs, drugs that are used often for irritable bowel syndrome or people who use drugs for uh, overactive bladder. Um, You know, if you hear a commercial on television that says dry mouth and blurry vision, that's an anticholinergic drug. So for anticholinergic toxicity, the mnemonic goes, mad as a hatter, hot as a hare, dry as a bone, blind as a bat. We all learned it in med school, but there's a friendly reminder. And Dr. Rasiniak clearly states that the dry part is one of the most important. Don't forget about urinary retention and constipation, which are also very common. So if you just think about dry, slow things going on in anticholinergic, you won't forget. Now let's head back to Dr. Rasiniak. Next up, salicylates or aspirin, sometimes we think of. Um, What are the clinical signs and symptoms of this kind of toxicity? So aspirin's got a whole spectrum depending on how much you have in you and what your aspirin level is. Early on, uh, people typically in the acute ingestions, early on with levels in the 20 to 40 range, you're going to see folks with GI upset. They're going to nausea, maybe some vomiting. As their levels kind of get higher, you can kind of get that classic tinnitus. And However, I, I will say that often if you say ask people if they have ringing in their ears, they'll say no. But if you ask them if they have a change in their hearing, they'll say, yeah, it sounds like I'm in a tunnel or I have a shell over my ear. Um, and now as levels continue to, to rise, you start to get in that 40 to 75 milligrams per deciliter range, you start to worry that they're getting really serious systemic toxicity. They can start to get elevated body temperature. They can start to get hypotension. You worry that ultimately they're going to develop the two things that we worry about, which is cerebral edema and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. When you start getting in those range, you're looking at uh, folks who are at high risk uh, of dying without intervention. Uh, what kind of treatment is there for this? So in those mild to moderate folks, the folks where those uh, aspirin levels are in that kind of 40 to uh, 75 mg per uh, deciliter range, we alkalize the blood and the urine. Uh, so we usually put them on a bicarb drip. And the reason you do that is it helps to two things. One, it keeps aspirin in the vasculature, in the bloodstream, so it keeps it out of the brain and out of Uh, the heart and lungs, which is good. The other thing, if you can alkalize the urine, that prevents aspirin from being reabsorbed in the kidney, and so it increases aspirin elimination. So we will put folks on bicarb drips, but when their levels start to get really high, and and the the ultimate, like, 
level is 100. If they get to 100 mg per deciliter or they're approaching 100 and they're getting any signs and symptoms of pulmonary edema, cerebral edema, or refractory acidosis, or renal failure, if they're getting any of that, they need emergent hemodialysis. This is one of those things that your nephrologist will need to come in, potentially in the middle of the night, hook somebody up to the machine, because if you don't dialyze these people when they get to these severe levels, they will die. Now, on a on a test, let's say, the anion gap, do we, does this help us at all? Yes. Uh, anion gaps, I think, are incredibly helpful in making this diagnosis if you don't have a history of ingestion, right? It's always easy when someone says, I just ate this bottle of aspirin, but that's not always the case, particularly with chronics, where people may be taking excess aspirin for chronic pains, or occasionally people are rubbing uh, liniments on themselves and their joints with methyl salicylate in them. In those cases, you may not get the history that leads you there. So when you look at your lab, if you've got an anion gap metabolic acidosis, you got to go back to that medical school brain where you say mud piles, and you start thinking about all the things that can contribute to an anion gap metabolic acidosis, the majority of which are toxins. And the S in mud piles is salicylate, and so anytime you got somebody with a low bicarb and an anion gap, you should start thinking about ordering an aspirin level. It's easy, it's fast, uh, and you know what? It, it takes the difficulty out of this. Okay, one of my favorites. You have a three-year-old, comes in from grandma's house. He's bradycardic and hypotensive. What should we be worried about? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. If he's at grandma's house, you're going to worry about cardiovascular drugs, you know, the antihypertensive agents and... Uh, drugs that people might be on for atrial fibrillation and other cardiac disorders. Specifically, the big two things you're going to worry about are beta blockers, and the worst of all are the calcium channel blockers. And what kind of uh, treatment are available for these? So if you've got a beta blocker, um, most of the kind of uh, beta 1, beta 2 antagonists are fairly well tolerated with kids. Um, treatment typically is going to be if they need a little fluid to increase their blood pressure or occasionally you can put them on a beta agonist so you could give them a little epinephrine. You know, the classic toxicologic treatment, which works as well, is to use glucagon. Uh, glucagon works by doing the same thing that epinephrine does. It just does so without a beta receptor. So you get the same intracellular effect. And so glucagon works kind of as a nice presser. The beta blockers we really worry about are not the atenolol and the metoprolol. It's the beta blockers that along with being beta antagonists are something else. And so propranolol is a potent sodium channel blocker. It's a bad combination. Sodalol is a good potassium efflux blocker and you can get torsades and long QT. So it's these other beta blockers that are probably the really bad players. But for a run-of-the-mill beta blocker, a little fluids, occasionally maybe a little atropine, a little epinephrine, glucagon, most are going to be tolerated fairly well. Calcium channel blockers? The worst. To yeah, totally different story. Those are a lot more difficult to manage. Those are the ones when you get the call in the middle of the night, you say, oh, bleep. Um, verapamil is probably the worst, and verapamil is the worst because along with slowing your heart rate down, it also decreases cardiac output and peripherally dilates you. So it hits every part of that mean arterial pressure equation, cardiac output, heart rate, systemic vascular resistance. Um, the dihydropyridines, things like amlodipine, those are predominantly peripheral vasodilators, but in large overdoses will hit cardiac stuff as well and can cause bradycardia. Calcium channel blockers are a lot more difficult to manage. You start simple with things like calcium uh, as a way to sort of uh, try to antagonize and compete. 
then you get into the pressors, start doing things that are good uh, alpha and uh, beta agonists, so norepinephrine, epinephrine. Uh, this is one of these things we have one of these unique kind of antidotes for, and that's high-dose insulin and uh, glucose. Uh, without getting too technical, uh, if you give uh, calcium channel blockers huge doses of insulin, uh, it works fairly well at preventing uh, death and shock. And when I say big doses, we're talking usually about half a unit to a unit of insulin per kilo per hour. So you got a 40 kilo kid, you're running them at about um, 40 units of insulin an hour, which gets, a lot. gets people a little bit nervous, but they do really well. You sometimes have to put them on uh, glucose as well. Again, uh, they tolerate this very well. It tends to help the pressors work better. It really is um, something that potentially is life-saving in these cases. In the really bad cases when you've got them on epinephrine or norepinephrine, you've got them on calcium, you've got them on high-dose insulin and glucose, maybe you've thrown glucagon at it, maybe they're on vasopressin, and they're still in refractory shock, this is when you call your ECMO colleagues and you put them on ECMO as well. That has also been shown to be a way to bridge uh, time long enough for the body to metabolize out the calcium channel blocker and uh, to give the kid an increased chance of survival. So basically tell grandma to put her, her pills away? The most important thing is to do is to tell grandma to lock up her medications. I will tell you, everyone who says their kids can't swallow pills, I just tell them to put them in grandma's purse or to throw them in the carpet because apparently if they're in those locations, children will eat them readily. <laughs> All right, next up, tricyclic antidepressants. How do these people usually come in? Yeah, this is one of the granddaddies of toxicology. Yeah. Uh, you know, and as a toxicologist, you, you kind of like these. Uh, TCAs are incredibly dirty from a drug standpoint. They hit so many receptors, and so you get a lot of different effects. One of the classic things you get is the anticholinergic toxidrome, as we talked earlier. So they'll come in, they'll be goofy, they might be tachycardic, they might have dilated pupils, urinary retention, dry skin. Um, but, you know, people don't usually die from an anticholinergic syndrome. The thing that makes TCAs so bad is the other things it uh, does. So they are potent sodium channel blockers. And by that, they block those fast uh, sodium channels in the heart. And what happens when you block those? You start to widen your QRS out. You start to get decreased contractility. You start to get shock and hypotension. And if that QRS gets too wide, you run the risk of these folks ultimately uh, developing a pulseless uh, kind of ventricular tachycardia. Um, along with that, they're pretty. some of them are pretty potent alpha blockers, so you're going to decrease cardiac output, and you're going to peripherally vasodilate people. That's a recipe for really bad shock, uh, and you can see that. And if that's not bad enough, some of these are also potent uh, seizure-provoking uh, agents, and so these folks can also develop seizures and occasionally can develop status epilepticus. So... Uh, these are uh, potentially really bad ingestions. Treatment, anything? Yeah, so the anticholinergic stuff is mostly su uh, supportive care. Seizures, we use benzodiazepines, and for a toxicologist, that means, you know, wheel up the benzo truck and just, like, pour it in. Pour it in yeah, because uh, we would take a sedative overdose over an anticholinergic overdose every uh, day because they're a lot easier to manage. For the wide QRS and the sodium channel blockade, uh, we really give focus on the antidote sodium bicarb. It has two benefits. One, the sodium will compete with those sodium channel blockers for those sodium channels. And so we give them big boluses of sodium. So, you know, you're typically starting off with about a 50 mil equivalent bolus uh, in most kids, maybe 100 in adults. 
that'll often narrow them down. If they narrow, great. Then we'll put them on a bicarb drip. If not, we'll keep bolusing them until we get them to narrow. For the hypotension, the alpha blocking uh, stuff, we give them alpha agonists. So this is somebody we'd put on norepinephrine. So this is somebody you could imagine on uh, repeated doses of benzos or a benzo drip, uh, a bunch of pushes of sodium bicarb and a bicarb drip, and on top of it, potentially on a norepinephrine drip. This is one of those kind of three drip overdoses. And what we put them like on the floor? <laughs> you, you think they need that if, it? If, Yeah, you can put them on the floor and that'll keep my uh, consultant business uh, in legal work uh, really, really active. It'll be really yeah, good. Yeah. Okay. Toxic alcohols. Methanol, ethylene glycol. Tell me about them. Well, just to be semantically correct, all alcohols are toxic. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> and anyone who's not seen a 16-year-old with a blood ethanol of 200, uh, <laughs> I think you're... Uh, Has been working long enough? Yeah, yeah, that, that person's pretty toxic. But really the ones we worry about, the two uh, biggest are methanol and ethylene glycol. And from a board standpoint, um, here's what I think you, you should know. Methanol is converted to formic acid. That's going to make you blind, and that's going to knock off your basal ganglia. And so those folks will show up, and they'll have potentially an osmolar gap, metabolic acidosis. They may have blurry vision, altered mental status. That's methanol. For ethylene glycol for the boards, again, you're going to have osmolar gap, profound metabolic acidosis, and those folks are going to have an elevated creatinine. Now, for boards, they'll often ask you things like they have calcium oxalate crystals in their urine, okay? And that's fine because ethylene glycol's bad metabolite is oxalic acid. That combines with calcium to form calcium oxalate. And so if you've got a board question that has calcium oxalate crystals, it's always ethylene glycol. In reality, I'm never looking at anyone's urine to make this diagnosis. The thing we're really looking for, we go back to that anion gap metabolic acidosis, is the mud piles, right? M in mud piles is methanol. The E in mud piles is ethylene glycol. So somebody with a low bicarb, um, you want to start potentially thinking about this. This is one where you get an serum osm osmol, and then you calculate uh, their osmoles, and you do that with the classic 2 times sodium plus BON over 2.8, plus glucose over 18, and if they have ethanol, it's plus ethanol over 4.6. That gives you a number. You see what the lab measures. If there's a huge difference between that, you know, typically greater than about 15, and they've got a metabolic acidosis, you've got to consider this a toxic alcohol until uh, proven otherwise. And the treatment is, so it is, with toxic alcohols, it's their metabolite that's the bad problem. It's the formic acid for methanol. It's the oxalic acid for ethylene glycol. So if you can keep the alcohol from being metabolized, you can potentially prevent the really bad organ damage. And the way we do that is we give a drug called 4-methylpyrazole. That drug is a really potent inhibitor of alcohol dehydrogenase, so the parent compound stays unmetabolized, which is great. If you don't have 4-MP, you can use ethanol. Ethanol will be preferentially metabolized by alcohol dehydrogenase, and so those are both potential treatments. Now, once you've blocked them, once, once they're not forming these toxic metabolites, that parent alcohol often still has to get out of the body, and the way that that's often done is with hemodialysis. The other thing for hemodialysis, if they have profound acidosis, if they're in renal failure or shock, that's another indication for emergent hemodialysis. Where do the uh, where do we usually find these? Oh, good question. Yeah, I got all in. I, I got all, all into the bio, biochemical weeds and forgot something simple, <laughs> right? So ethylene glycol is the antifreeze. This is the stuff you're going to dump in your car. 
you know, people like to talk about it being fluorescent. And that's because they add fluorescein to antifreeze. That helps the mechanics know if there's a leak. And you do pee out fluorescein, but don't. The boards may have you, you know, a person whose urine fluoresces. That's ethylene. That's ethylene glycol or antifreeze. But in reality, it's not that helpful. <clears throat> For methanol, it's typically going to be found in windshield washer fluid or sterno. You know, when you go to restaurants and they've got the buffet and they've got those little cans of a little blue, little, yeah, fire. a little blow fire. Those are almost always methanol. Oh, wow. And so those are really two things. Gas line antifreeze to keep your gas line is almost always methanol as well. So a little bit more uh, common sources of methanol. And if you're in a foreign country and people are making their own alcohol, uh, methanol is sometimes a byproduct of, of um, ethanol manufacturing. Now the, the people in kind of good you know manufacturing get rid of the methanol uh, that comes off early on but in a lot of countries that methanol poisoning is attributed to somebody making their homemade uh, brew or hooch all right like the people down south in the woods making their uh, yeah in their in their, their moonshine in their, it's the people in their hot tubs in the woods <laughs> with their exactly. moonshine there you go so the boards want us to know about hydrocarbons i am completely lost on this one what is a hydrocarbon how do you get toxic from a hydrocarbon. All right. So hydrocarbons really are a big issue, particularly with kids. Um, So there are so, I mean, gasoline is a hydrocarbon to keep it kind of simple. So uh, fuels are typically hydrocarbons. The things that are problems from a kid's standpoint, if you have something that's flammable in your house, that's usually a problem. The big ones are lamp oils, kerosenes, gasolines, um, and the reason is that those, the way the hydrocarbons properties are, they're low viscosity, um, kind of big surface uh, area, they are easily aspirated, even potentially a claw, across a closed glottis. And if aspirated, they get into the lungs and they wipe out surfactant, and a lot of these kids have the risk or potential of developing a horrible pneumonitis. So hydrocarbons are one of those few things when people ask me, like, how do you keep your house safe? Like, I get those things locked up and put away. Lamp oils were really a bad player for a long time because they're colored, they're often scented, they often wouldn't have childproof caps in there, and so occasionally kids would get into them. But it can be kerosene, it can be uh, citronella oil. Kind of, you think about it, kind of anything potentially flammable. There are some other agents too, but that's the easiest way to think about it. And those are kids who develop, again, bad respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, can really require a lot of pulmonary support. So if you get that, the thing you're going to look for, a kid who ingests that, you're going to look for coughing, respiratory distress. You're going to get a chest X-ray. If they've got an infiltrate, you're going to be bringing those kids in and watching them overnight. Most do fine, but occasionally folks will go on to develop pneumonitis. Occasionally, early on, kids will be pretty sleepy after ingesting these agents as well. Okay. This one, I always feel like the question says something about a kid from the farm. <laughs> okay. They come in, they have organophosphate poisoning. How yeah. am I going to figure that out? Yeah, again, a great toxidrome here, and that's the classic sludge syndrome or dumbbells. So it's the opposite in some ways of anticholinergic, right? Anticholinergic, they're dry. The sludge syndrome, they're wet. So all those glands are overactive now because you're increasing parasympathetic uh, function. So they're going to be salivating. They're going to be sweaty. They're going to have lacrimation. They might have diarrhea. Certainly vomiting is really common in these folks as well. You can get bradycardia. Uh, in bad uh, organophosphate poisonings, and that would be kind of the board thing I would look at. You're going to have small pupils. Well, pilocarpine is a good anti, uh, or good parasympathetic agent, sometimes used uh, for folks with uh, glaucoma, and that's going to cause small pupil. It's probably important to keep in mind, though, that in reality you may not see bradycardia. 
And the reason is is that the sympathetic system, that preganglionic, I know everyone's banging their head right now hearing that word, those preganglionic receptors are also parasympathetic. They're nicotinic, cholinergic. So occasionally you can even get a little tachycardia with these kids. So I wouldn't use bradycardia as, as a real life kind of like, well, they're not bradycardic, can't be. Um, a cholinergic syndrome. But again, the sludge, their salivating lacrimation, urination, defecation, those are the big things. The things that kill people, though, so sludge is a great way to make the diagnosis, but the thing that's going to kill you is pulmonary edema because you get pulmonary secretions and bronchospasm, right? We use ipotropium because it's anticholinergic to help bronchodilate people. So giving somebody a cholinergic, like a methylcholine challenge, can cause them to have bad bronchoconstriction and bronchorrhea. So people will drown to death. Uh, the other two things that can potentially kill you is that these agents can cause seizures, and so you can get uh, status. And the other is that, that those nicotinic receptors in your neuromuscular junction, when they're overstimulated, like when you give succinylcholine, yes, you'll get a little bit of muscle contraction, but that's followed by paralysis. And so that can kill people as well, that they'll get respiratory paralysis. The treatment is you treat the sludge part of this by making them anticholinergic. You give them enough atropine that you block those muscarinic parasympathetic receptors and you dry up those pulmonary secretions. And that's really your goal here. You know, no one's going to cry to death. No one's going to sweat to death or pee to death or diarrhea to death in the U.S., but you can drown. So drying up those pulmonary secretions become really important with atropine. The other thing, you can give them benzos if they seize, is you're going to put them on what we call an oxime. In the U.S., that's pralidoxime. And you need to do that so that that can bind to those organophosphorus compounds and take them off of the acetylcholinesterase enzyme. Because the way these organophosphates work is they inhibit the enzyme acetylcholinesterase. The job of that enzyme is to break down acetylcholine. And the reason it's so important is that if acetylcholine is circulating around unchecked, it causes this horrible syndrome. So pralidoxine will help to pull that organophosphate or phosphorus compound off of the enzyme acetylcholinesterase so that the enzyme can start working normally again. So you have to do two things. You have to block the secretions with an anticholinergic agent, and then you've got to reverse the enzyme inhibition with pralidoxine. All right. Now, I've heard this is the one where you, you run out of atropine, right? Oh, that's... Is that real? Yeah, no. no. Um, I mean, could, could you? Sure. I mean, uh, sometimes these folks are really potent cholinergic agents. You can give huge doses of atropine. This is one you don't get too scared about giving atropine, you know. And there are cases of people using almost gram amounts of atropine to reverse it. But, I mean... In real life. In a, in a real life, in a kid, you're not getting a... Su- you know, these are suicide attempts, typically, in people who have ingested mass quantities. Most of the time in pediatrics, you're going to get a small exposure. They're going to be symptomatic... And particularly kids, little kids can just sometimes show up floppy. They can have the, the muscular stuff uh, that's the most prevalent finding. But they usually are, are fairly well treated, hopefully without giving, you know, grams of atropine and exhausting your pharmacy supply. You know, hopefully no more than five milligrams or so of atropine will be needed in most of these kids. Okay, carbon monoxide poisoning. Pretty common in the U.S.? Yeah, it's still probably, if you you know look at house fires, it's still probably one of the most common, if not the most common, toxicologic death. So the problem, of course, carbon monoxide is odorless, tasteless. You know, you're not going to know you're exposed to it. It's a, a potent mitochondrial inhibitor, so it kind of is going to prevent ATP formation. And if you think of that, well, what two organs have the highest ATP requirement? That would be the brain and the heart. And so really you start to get signs and symptoms of neurologic and cardiac dysfunction when your carbon monoxide levels are high enough. And so 
You may get early on, you're going to get headache, nausea, ataxia, really common. If those progress, you're going to often develop tachycardia, hypotension, you can get cardiac ischemia, then you can get coma, seizures, and death. So when we think about how people are exposed to carbon monoxide, the common thing everyone points out is the faulty furnace, and that's true. So if you've got a board question that has somebody in wintertime who has a headache and is found unresponsive, and there's more than one person involved, that's carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide. Some other kind of rare exposures that are probably worth uh, knowing. So any potential fuel source can do this if there's incomplete combustion. So if you have a kerosene heater, people who bring generators into their house, see this all the time, power goes out, bring your generator in and hook it up to your heater so that your house is warm. Well, that generator is powered by gas, which means it's making carbon monoxide in its exhaust. Um, power washing your basement, we'll see. Houseboats, people kind of laying out on the back of their houseboat while it's running. The carbon monoxide can kind of come out of the water and envelop it, and there's deaths from there. Crazy things you don't think about, Zambonis. So you'll almost always see this, a faulty Zamboni that's uh, not working well, releasing a ton of carbon monoxide, and all the kids in the skating rink getting potentially <laughs> carbon monoxide poisoned. Um, Propane-powered things like forklifts and equipment can also generate a fair bit of carbon monoxide. So... Yeah, again, multiple people, headache, hypotension, coma, always think about carbon monoxide. Treatment, oxygen, oxygen, oxygen for your boards. They might include carb, uh, hyperbaric oxygen as well. Mm -hmm. That's just a way of getting a lot more oxygen into somebody a lot faster. Um, and, you know, if it's available on a board question, yeah, pick sure. It. Yeah, pick it. Pick yeah. HBO if it's available. In reality, most of the time we're just putting people on a non-rebreather. All right, the classic question. The three-year-old gets into mom's prenatal vitamins. Yeah, if you are if you had to know anything for Pete's toxicology, I'd know iron. Um, in some ways, it is responsible for a lot of our changes in uh, the field of toxicology, childproof caps and things like that, blister packing of, of medicines. And the reason is that prenatal vitamins had a large amount of iron, typically about 325 milligrams, and they were candy-coated, and kids would get into them and get iron poisoned and die. So that was a big problem. So changing the packaging really has dramatically reduced the number of pediatric iron ingestions. But it's still very, very, very board worthy. So iron is one of those things that you're going to be tested on as having classic phases. You know, in reality, this is probably never uh, useful. But it's great for boards. Phase one, early on, iron is a really potent GI irritant. So you're going to see folks who get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, potentially could get a little bit of... Um, uh, hemorrhagic diarrhea and vomiting, but really bad GI stuff. And then you get into this classic uh, kind of quiescent phase, which is the pills have all been absorbed, so the GI tract is no longer uh, as irritated and they feel a little bit better, but now all that iron is being uh, distributed through the vasculature to organs, and now they're getting into trouble. Um, and then they kind of develop the next phase, maybe phase three, where they're getting hypotension, profound metabolic acidosis, CNS depression, coma, and just really bad. sick. Yeah, yeah, bad stuff. And then the last phase is, hey, I recovered, and now I've got either renal injury or my uh, hepatic injury is kind of the classic. So iron's a bad player. Iron 
in some ways is like an adolescent. It's absolutely fine if it has a chaperone or it's attached to a protein, but it is a disaster if left unchecked. And if you think about all of the proteins in your body that bind iron, the reason they do so is because iron can't be left alone. So you've got transferrin, ferritin, hemosiderin, um, the myoglobin, cytochromes, and you know, the list goes on for things that bind iron. So if you ingest a lot of iron and that elemental iron is absorbed and you overwhelm those protein binding systems and you get free iron, that iron undergoes something called a Fenton reaction, generates uh, hydroxyl free radicals and starts causing horrible tissue damage. So again, along the GI tract, really bad GI symptoms. Once it's absorbed, vasculature, you start third spacing fluid and you get profound hypotension, really bad metabolic acidosis. Once it hits your mitochondria, stop making ATP, so then you get kind of heart failure, you get CNS uh, collapse, uh, coma, uh, profound metabolic acidosis. These folks, these kids will die going uh, with if they're not treated. And so how, it, how do you treat them? Uh, because iron was such a bad player, the good thing is that somebody figured out an antidote. And the antidote is something called deferoxamine or deferoxamine, and that will bind iron. And it's used in other conditions, like sometimes people who have you know bad hemochro- uh, you know, hemochromatosis will get on deferoxamine as well to bind some of that iron. So it is the antidote. Um, uh, we'll put kids on it. Usually the indication is going to be if they've got an iron level. I think for your boards, they'd use a level of about 500, which is eh, fairly conservative. Uh, so your level iron level over 500, we're going to consider uh, chelating them with deferoxamine. Um, how much iron, or if they've got, you know, coma, hypotension, profound acidosis, and, you know, a lower level, but probably still greater than 400, we'd consider chelating them with deferoxamine. All right, lead poisoning. The uh, old house paint? Like, when, when would we... I mean, this is silly. Like, like what's the chance that we're going to have to deal with, you know, a lot of kids being exposed to lead? Like, I would think low. I think incredibly low. <laughs> I, unless, of course, you're in Flint, Michigan, or right. Somewhere. Washington, D.C., or <laughs> any, other, any, other any other major city with crumbling infrastructure. So, yeah, I mean, lead's a classic kind of toxin. Um yeah, a couple things to sort of comment on lead off of the boards, you know, like not for boards, is that, you know, if you look at overall lead exposure in this country, it's way down and has continued to go down every year. And that's because the two big forms of previous uh, environmental lead exposure were paint. Lead was great in paint because it kept paint from getting kind of uh, peeling and chipping and prevented mold and other things like that. So all houses were painted with, with lead. And now those old houses, the lead's chipped and, you know, and kids stick their stick everything, everything in, their in their mouth and so yeah. they get lead toxicity but as they phased out uh, lead paints really in i think it was the 80s late 70s you know we've seen less and less in that as the homes have been kind of redone the other big source of previous lead was lead-based uh gasolines we had lead added to gasoline uh, as tetraethyl lead as a way to keep the engines from going clunk 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 the kind of anti-knock agent and so all of that stuff would get spilled into the environment. And so those two things being eliminated has really dramatically decreased environmental lead exposure. So number one, that's good. The problem, of course, right now is that a lot of the plumbing in this country still has either lead in the pipes or lead in the solder. And as that 
kind of over time, if water becomes more acidic, like in Flint, they used a different water source. The water source was more acidic. I mean, the pipes always had lead in them, but the problem is the water was more acidic and they didn't do some pretreatment stuff to help prevent the lead in the pipes from leaching out. Then all of a sudden, all the lead in these old pipes starts leaching out, and then kids who are drinking the water are being exposed to lead. So the problems with lead um, are kind of twofold. One is chronic low-level low lead exposures over time. You worry a little bit about developmental problems, particularly cognitive issues. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of controversy in my area about what lead level really does result in people having long-term neurodevelopmental uh, problems. And the short answer is I don't know if anyone knows. You know, they keep changing the level. Um, more recently now it's down to five micrograms per deciliter as the level at which uh, you're considered toxic. It used to be 10. It used to be higher than that. So the bottom line is it's still fairly low. If you've got a kid with a lead level over five, really the, the – thing you worry about is a little bit of developmental. The, the most at-risk kids are those kids who are still kind of have a rapid amount of neurologic uh, kind of development who are still pruning all of those connections. So it's that age up to about two to three years old. So that one to three year old is really the highest risk. Once kids get a little bit older and all their connections have been made and they've done all their kind of what we call pruning, they're probably at a little bit lower risk. Adults, for instance, we don't worry at all if their lead level's 10. I mean, we, we, we tell them don't be exposed to lead if you can, but we don't worry about any long-term neurocognitive development. But little kids, we do. And so when you get those lead levels of 10 is a good example, what do you do? What you do is you find out where the lead source is and you eliminate it. You really don't need to do anything else in that one. So in Flint, Michigan, you know, you give them bottled water, you eliminate the source, and you hope long-term that it doesn't result in anything. And you know, it, it's fairly mild what I think the long-term detriment would be, but you know, it's, it's additive over time. So yeah, eliminate the lead source. It's only if your lead levels start to get really high that we start talking about chelating. And so when you worry about kids who start getting lead levels over 45 is sort of the magic number, we start uh, chelating them. And the reason is that if lead levels get too high, and to be, to be honest, when we're talking too high, we're really talking in the hundreds, but if the levels get too high, you worry about them developing cerebral edema, those uh, kind of tight junction neurons start to leak, their capillaries start to leak, their head swells, and this is still something that can potentially cause uh, death. And you don't usually see it much in the U.S. because, again, we've been so good about eliminating lead in our environment, but you still see this in other countries where there, there's not been as much um, environmental uh, elimination, and there's a lot of like folk remedies that have lead in them, and a lot of piping and stuff that still has lead in it. So, uh, when you start to get those really high levels, you start to worry about serious neurologic dysfunction and even potentially death. So, over 45, we chelate. The drug we use in the United States, if they're not encephalopathic, if they can take oral medicines, we use a compound called Succimer or DMSA, sometimes also called Chemet. It's an oral chelator. It's, you know, three times a day. You take it for three weeks. It's going to increase lead elimination in the urine, and you follow them, and then once your lead levels come down, you stop it. If they are encephalopathic, they're in the hospital, they've got cerebral edema, you know, you can't really give them orals. The two agents that we typically use, and we have to use them together, is a compound called BAL, or British Analuocyte. It's a painful IM injection because it's mixed in peanut oil, but it's a good lead chelator. And then... EDTA is the other one that, that we will use. Um, so we usually like to use calcium EDTA because it prevents hypocalcemia. Uh, sometimes people quacks in the community will try to chelate kids for autism and things like that. And if they don't use the right EDTA, they can cause 
fatal hypocalcemia in these kids. Right. There's cases reported. So we would chelate kids with levels greater than 45, and you'd really worry when their levels are greater than 100 about potential death. Wow. All right. That's good to know. Yep. Well, thank you. I think that covers most of everything for the uh, toxicology. It was, but that, that it is was literally, a, that's it was like, like the shortest amount of time. That is a, that's just the, the iceberg of toxicology. I know. You're going to cut, we could go, we could, should keep going. Well. We should do, like, <laughs> we could do this for two years could, and then you could, could be a to- and then you could be a tox fellow. That's true. And then you would, true. then we'd give you a certificate. That's exciting. Certificate of participation? That's right. a real do. one? Probably just participation. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.